sometimes in the course of doing this show, uh, I hit it off with a guest and we become friends. It's happened. But sometimes, like in the case of today, the guest is already my friend. Or, more specifically, the guest today is my best friend. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Brass section swells underneath, and it's just this this ode to the '70s. It's rocky. It's Woodstock before the rain. It's it's a reason to live. And I conduct the song for hours, and I I stand there and I'd be conducting the instruments. I cue the musicians, and I'd beg the trumpet player to wail for the final crescendo, and I. Again! That is a clip from Michael Charles Roman's new movie, Introducing Billy Bradley. Let me tell you a little bit about Michael Charles Roman and Introducing Billy Bradley. Now, I have to admit before we start, I'm a little biased because I love this guy, but what's not to love? The New York-born actor Michael Charles Roman has been in movies and TV since he was just a little guy. With a career that spans over 30 years, his IMDb is kind of like a Snickers bar. It's filled with a lot of stuff. I can't give you a rundown of everything he's done, so consider this a partial list. If you want movies, he's done Keeping the Faith with Ed Norton and Ben Stiller, Little Nicky with Adam Sandler, and Rob Burnett's We Made This Movie. When it comes to TV, you've seen him on Bones, The Good Wife, Veronica Mars, Ground Floor, Two Broke Girls, Evil, Frequency, and most recently... Netflix's Grace and Frankie with Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. A veteran of commercials, movies, and television while still only in his 30s, Michael Charles Roman is one of those timeless actors. He's got the punchline prowess of everyone from Michael J. Fox to Jason Bateman, the comedic instincts of Martin Short, and a theatrical range that could find him doing period pieces or contemporary dramas. The guy can do it all. And just to test that idea, he decided to do it all on his first short film, Introducing Billy Bradley. The film is a semi-autobiographical short written, directed, and produced by Roman, who stars alongside his former Grace and Frankie scene partner, Martin Sheen. Introducing Billy Bradley follows a down-on-his-luck actor who finds himself at a critical crossroads. Save his life or salvage what's left of his floundering career. The movie also stars Alexandra Metz of Frequency, R.J. Smith of The Rookie, and the legendary Garrett Morris of SNL. Now, Billy Bradley does what, in my opinion, the best short films do, leave you both satisfied and wanting more. Not an easy balance, but in his directorial debut, Roman does just that. It's a brilliant film that in just 14 minutes manages to do what some films take hours to attempt to do. Roman gets the job done. You gotta see it to see what I mean. Look, I'm lucky enough to get to talk to this guy every day, and you get a chance to hear what our conversations are like. All I did was hit record. So here you go. Me and Michael Charles Roman having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast.
say before we hopped on the call here, I spoke to your team. I spoke to Chris, your producer, and and we were kind of in in awe of where do you find the time? You're you've got. I mean, I don't know if if you're loyal listeners are aware that there's now embers arts press Mm -hmm. that you are you are a publishing house and you are putting out original content incredible authors you have an amazing slate on the horizon you're putting out two of your own books of which i have read and i am within a hair's breadth from leaking because the world needs to see it (laughs) malro and the adventure team all-stars and and then somehow you wedge in daily calls with me that are never recorded except if we include the nsa (laughs) and you're teaching you're a professor like how how are you managing all this and by the way can we just maybe tease you know give a little morsel a little nougat a little toblerone to the to the listeners as to what's coming up for you and and how you're managing well, first of all, all of our call, I record all of our calls. I should tell you that. Oh, <laughs> this is recorded. like the Nixon tapes. Yeah, I've got like, Excellent. I have like years, because people, you and I talk every day, and I have just years of dat tapes of you and I. Oh, I'm so glad talking. that I have something new to talk about in therapy this week. Yeah. <laughs> that is Listen, tremendous. You're very kind to say all those things. I'm just trying to come up with every day, I think of new ways to not make money. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's as many endeavors so get ready for more oh oh you too no um i just i'm just i i'm here to tell everybody uh that the material is so good uh buyers you know get in line because uh the, the, it's such good material and it's oh my god i can't wait for people to read them really the books are amazing and thank you for for that. I appreciate that. But that also that brings me to the idea of like, and you and I have talked about this for a long time. But you know, it, and thank you for saying the work is good. But if the work is good, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to translate. Like I look at my, you know, I look at my favorite bands, and they put out like my favorite most there these brilliant albums, and I think yeah. fifteen people bought them or. You know, you know this. You've been involved in projects. Like, I think, like, we made this movie is one of the funniest, most. Oh, that movie, Rob Burnett's movie, is so funny and so moving. And, no, and, it really and, is. Right? Where was the audience for that? I, that frustrates me so much. No, it really is crazy. And, and and again, thank you for saying that. And we had such a ball shooting it, and there was such heart in in the story and there were such big laughs and there there were moving moments and it kind of really had everything that you would want in a coming of age story and we all you know um were able to kind of get the word out we did some late night rounds and yeah i I don't know that this is so vexing with art in general uh you and i talk about this ad nauseum about what hits and what doesn't and I think that people have a misconception that if you're not, you know, winning an award or if you're not breaking records, it must not be good. And that's just not the case. I I really do just think that there is so much out there. Um, I, I, I think it's sometimes hard to, to hone in on just one 
uh, great artist. You know, you and I talk all the time. I mean, he's been an inspiration to some of my writing. Uh, he, he's a muse of sorts. But Leif Volabeck, that you introduced me to years ago, I'm, I'm, I think it had to be, I want to say eight years ago, maybe nine. And you gave me his second album. And I said, oh, my God, to my wife, my, my then girlfriend, I said, we, we have to go see him. He's playing at the Hotel Cafe in the heart of Hollywood. And we went and there were nine people. Ugh. But nine years later, he's selling out in Brooklyn. He did a U.S. tour. And, you know, there's small venues, but every time he goes out, there's a couple more seats and there's a couple, you know, there's bigger venues. I, I think there's so many factors, but I, I think a lot of waiting in the pool, um, trying different approaches. And what's crazy about all of this, and, and uh, you and I were talking about this, God, yesterday. It's just one, all it takes is the one, if there's one decision maker one tastemaker, one kingmaker that listens or happens to catch a bit of whatever you're pushing. That's all it takes. And I think that we're all chasing that elusive call or shot. It's out there. When it'll happen, it's anyone's guess. It's tricky. Did I ever tell you that story about that woman? I was doing an in-conversation at a bookstore in Oakland. This is like maybe five or six years ago. And this woman had written a book. And it was really good. It was her first novel. And she had just given birth like two weeks earlier. Oh, my God. Really? Right? And she was doing – so she and her husband drove up from Los Angeles. They had a hotel room in Oakland. She pumped her breast milk, left it wow. with him, came to do the reading. Nobody showed up. Oh, right? stop it. Nobody. So it was just the two of us there. And I said to her, I'm so sorry. Like, I don't know what happened. And I thought, like – Nobody could blame her if she turned to me and said, you know what? I'm done. <laughs> I'm going to go like right. raise my, but she didn't. She had a, a reading the next night somewhere else and she just soldiered on. And, uh, and that oh was that. Oh my God. What a warrior. That's. I know. But that's here's amazing. the thing. But we're all warriors. I think you have to be prepared to be a warrior, which makes me think for you. I mean, you got into this business at age what? five five and yeah. no one, i mean and and no one sat you down and said you're gonna have to be a warrior i mean you just right you just started <laughs> true right yeah i wish they had i might have no no you're right they didn't right and but, I, I and yet here we are right 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 when did you learn that that this business requires patience it requires faith it requires you know because there obviously there's low moments and high moments and there's all those in between stuff how, like how do you as an adult in this industry how do you comport yourself to be that warrior that's not easy no and i mean fortunately and unfortunately i i learned a lot of that i mean before 10 because it's funny you know as a child actor I had a lot of success early on, and then I had steady success. You know, every season there's pilot season, and I I, I had a six year stint of doing a pilot a year and doing a lot of guest spot work and a lot of commercial work, and it was just uh, th there was always something. Every week there was something, 
But when a show didn't get picked up or when you heard that's a wrap, there was this severing of ties. You know, you built up this camaraderie with the cast and the crew. And then as a child, you know, to look up at your mom and say, wait, what's happening? And, oh, well, that's it. Thus endeth. Or if you did a pilot and you heard it didn't get picked up, what does that mean? Well, you're never going to see those people again. That show is never going to be seen. And we just have to go back on, you know, hit the road and, and get back to auditioning again. So that, you know, I was hitting reset almost daily where, you know, you get close and close, but no cigar, um, you know, and so without even realizing it at such a young age, I started kind of building up, you know, palaces um, where it really started to affect me was when I first moved out to L.A. and lived with our uh, mutual pal um, and. I remember. <laughs> and I was, you know, going on auditions, getting really close, screen testing, signing contracts, going in for the network. This is it. No, it's not it. And while also writing really hefty rent checks, like that was essentially my, my college years. So when I was really privy to it, when I turned 18 and started, you know, either schlepping into the city or moving out to LA on my own, the anxiety started to appear because it, it you know, I, I started going like, oh, wait, there, there is a severity to a lot of this. And so sometimes trying to compartmentalize that became tricky. I'm able to now because as a father, I'm able to go like what's important, what's not. Um, but yeah, that resilience, it, it's tough. It's funny that I, I think back on actors kids that i grew up with um and go man where did they go and what did they do and oh they probably wised up um and said enough of this torture um and then every now and then i'll see one of them pop up i just saw a kid i shouldn't say a kid he's probably my he's probably in his mid to late 30s uh chris marquette did a nice little stint on barry chris and i came up um and we auditioned for every commercial and he and his mom and his little brother they you know all tag along to commercial auditions and i didn't see him for years and i just thought oh he's one of the smart ones he got out he has a steady job he moved to the burbs no he was still doing it and doing it very well he did a great um part on barry uh last year and so to people like him, like me, like you, like us, um, somehow we soldier on. I, I, it could be the wiring. It could be um, insanity. I, I, I don't know, but we somehow manage to just keep pushing that boulder up the hill. It seems to me like, um, you know, being young, because you did that pilot with John Goodman that that didn't go right it was the craziest no it did go without oh, did go. us I think I was it's so funny those early 2000s are a little foggy I think that was around 2000 2002 somewhere in there and I did that show 
we all went into that show knowing it was picked up which is unheard of. Um, it was John Goodman's return to television. He had not done television since Roseanne and Anthony LaPaglia. This was pre without a trace. And it was Bonnie and Terry Turner who co-created the Cosby show and they created third rock from the sun and that 70 show. And this was a big deal. And we shot the pilot knowing we were picked up for 13 episodes. And we, went to new york and we went to lincoln center and we did the upfronts and we did the red carpet and we spoke you know to the the ad we you know we, we went out in front of the ad um companies and and we all you know did this whole song and dance and a week before it became official uh they fired everyone but john goodman and then retooled the show and it became normal ohio which went for a couple episodes and kind of um, fizzled. Uh, that one was a hard one because we went into it going, oh, we have this guaranteed gig. We're on at least a half of a season on network television in the fall. We got a job. Um, and then we didn't. And I was like, wait, that this can happen? And that was another uh, hand dealt that I didn't even know existed. I thought like, oh no, we're we're committed, right? Oh no, there's this... They had an out in the 11th hour and they used it and it blindsided us. Was that a financial decision or just like, where does that decision come from? I was never really told. Um, we all had our theories, um, but we were just, you know, they, they like to shrug and go, it is what it is. This was the decision made from on high. Um, and and that was it. It was really. I remember calling the 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 lady who played my sister, Ellen Muth, who I think went on to play in uh, her own series Dead Like Me, something, something like that. And she was fabulous. And and she was like, wait, wait, what, what, what is, what does this mean? And I, none of us could really make much sense of it. Um, but yeah, somehow you know, okay, well, you you dust that off and your agent calls you the next day and say hey um we have a commercial audition for you and you're you're back at one you know oh and you god. have to hit reset yeah oh my god yeah it, it seems to me that like that kind of heartbreak is healthy because you're learning obviously to weather the storms that that you know life can throw at you but it also seems like it's really unhealthy at the same time because you get this kind of emotional whiplash where you think i'm in i'm out i'm in am i in again now i'm out um yeah so and i i learned that really I, I learned that early early on which again i don't advise this is the thing when i hear people and and child actors now and um i i just advise people to like wait because when those shoes drop, um, as a child, you can't help but think, oh, what about me? Don't they like, was it me? Did uh, I do it? Could I have been better? Because your job as an actor is you're going into these rooms alone with, you know, people behind a desk and they go, okay, and action. And your entire pitch to them, the subtext is, please like me enough 
please like me more than the other guy you just saw. And if you don't get it, or if the show doesn't get picked up, you think, oh my God, was it me? Could I have, just give me one more take. Can I do it again for you? Um, so, you know, early on, I learned that no, it wasn't me or there were myriad factors at play. And so that I, I was, you know, really reliant on a lot of, you know, TLC from my, my parents and my family going like, it's not you, you know, let, let's, let's soldier on, let's go on to the next. And if at any time you want to stop doing this, let's pull the plug and let's just be a normal kid. But if you want to keep doing this, and of course I'd be like, don't even finish the sentence. Like, yes, I, I, I love this too much to let it, to let it go. Um, yeah, it's, it's, there are some, even now, I mean, as a 35 year actor that you go like, God, I really, that one would have been really good. Um, but me and Cher can't <laughs> turn back time. But what you can do is you can think like, well, what have I learned? And which I want to get to, because I think one of the things that I've always appreciated about you is that you're a really generous guy when it comes to other people's performances. Like you're not, you're not catty about performances in, in roles. You'll, you'll say, God, that guy did such a great job. But I would imagine as you know, if you're a kid and you keep seeing the same people that you're going up against for the same roles, I mean, you'd have to be maybe a little bit competitive or, or not, but you didn't ever get jaded. It seems like you always are very congratulatory for people who do you know, good work. Yeah, I think as a kid, I, because I was working so much, I, I wasn't really aware of other jobs that maybe I didn't get or I, I just wasn't aware. I became I started becoming really aware of it in my late teens, early 20s. And I've said this to you and I say this to a lot of people, the, the difference with the entertainment industry versus any other is that when you don't get the job – if you go in for an interview, you just hear you didn't get it and you just soldier on and you put in the next job application with an actor uh, or stage performer, you audition, they say no, and then in a couple months, you'll be able to turn on the television and see who got it uh. and you can watch the audition scene that you did and go, they did it like that? Oh, but I did it way better. I, oh, no. Oh, they they didn't cry? Oh, I cried. I, And that's where it becomes a little vexing because you can be laying in bed at home watching a performance thinking, oh, I thought I did it better. And then you go, oh, maybe I didn't. And then you just have to compartmentalize that or just go, yeah, but look at the way they look or – there's something so unique in their performance that maybe the creative saw that just stood out more to them. Um, a lot of times, I mean, I've, I've talked to writers about parts only one time has the writer of a show that I was fortunate enough to get said, you are exactly what we wrote and envisioned when we wrote it. It's only happened once. Um, so you have to be so close to what they envision, what they go in the room looking for. Um, 
and you know the network has to like you the studio so there's a lot of factors at play um but no i don't i mean life's too short to get bitter or um jaded about that kind of stuff now especially i i i'm at the kind of the phase in my life where you know there's a lot of parts that i don't even i, I get the opportunity to read there's a lot of straight offer parts um but they're people in my age range or uh in my you know, breakdown category type, a young Jason Bateman type or a snarky lawyer type or whatever. And, you know, I'm, I'm able to really watch in awe and applaud them. Um, I've never been in the same room or the same arena of a Kieran Culkin, but he's, you know, within my age range ish. Uh, but I'm able to look at his performance as Roman, uh, in in succession, a role which I would have killed to just audition for. Yeah. But I look at that and I go, oh, that is he is he's hitting grand slams in every scene. Um, I don't sit there going like, oh, I could have done. It's no, I, he he is uh, Emmy worthy. Um, he's fabulous. So no, I'm, I'm able to really appreciate uh, other people's interpretations of parts I went for or didn't, and I just sit back and enjoy it. When I first met you, that's a long time ago. You were always going to the city, and you know, getting on getting on the subway or not the subway, getting on the train, yeah, um, to go audition. Um, and now it's sort of like you put yourself on tape. Is do you prefer a live audition or because it seems like it's more dynamic because there's people in the room, whereas so much more, right? So much more because again, the the difference with at home self tapes um i mean there's so many factors especially now as a father i'm like oh my god okay the baby's down um oh god i have to yell in the scene let's put five pillows next to my door his door okay i'll shout this much but that should really do the job but i don't want to wake oh my god he's up um so there's that but then and then there's the you know, reader, oftentimes when you go into to rooms um, or did in the past anyway, you know, you'd be reading with the casting director and these casting directors are getting notes directly from either the studio or the network or from the creator of the show about, hey, lead the actors this way, give them this note. Um, and, and again, these 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 casting directors who I've had the, you know, uh, it's been a joy reading for so many. I mean, the Tracy Lillian Fields and, and um, Marcy Phillips and A.V. Kaufman's of the world and Mark Sachs. These people are so dynamic. They're, they're fabulous actors themselves. Um, Julie Ashton is such an amazing room for comedic actors. Um and and lets you ad lib and and there's a fire in her eyes where she kind of like yeah like you know encourages you yeah like lean into that bit or what so yeah there there's there's a real energy in those rooms and you're trying to replicate that at home and also you're just going off of your gut and when you're doing that at home you end up doing 40 takes Oh, no, I think I did that. I stumbled here. And can I watch that back? When you go into those auditions room, you get one shot. And there's something about that high pressure, um, tight rope walk that is exciting. At least it, it, it has been for me. 
um, that helps elevate the performance and it kind of it, it jacks me up a little bit and it gives me a little bit, you know, that boost of adrenaline where if I'm at home and hey, we're shooting from the shoulders up, I'll keep my pajamas on, um, on the bottom. <laughs> and they don't see, and I'm maybe wearing my slippers where, you know, before it was, Hey, I got to hop on the train for three hours. I got to take the one subway uptown. I got, there is this buildup and you better not drop the ball because they're giving you one take. And if they like you, they'll give you a note and you can do it again. Um, so yeah, I do miss that. I miss that a lot. I, and I know every actor who I'm friends with misses it. We, we, we really miss the guidance and we miss the, the energy in the room. And also the idea of that when you are struggling to get somewhere on time from one, you know, geographical location to the other, it's like, you can't mess up your hair. You can't get too sweaty. Right. Oh God. I, I had to. Oh my God, the sweat. I mean, in the summer, the humidity in Manhattan, I would bring in my backpack, I have like multiple outfit changes um, because I knew I would like soak through one uh, and you'd have to bring those blotting pads for, for oil. And I'm like, Oh my Ugh. God, is it? And you're, you're, you're quick, you know, futzing with your hair and yeah, there, there's, it, it's because it is high stakes. You, you know, it, you'll go into these rooms and you think like, Oh, this is just going into the ether, but no, that tape has the potential to reach a Bill Lawrence and get seen by the head of Warner brothers. And that could change the rest of your life. And so you want to look your best and you want to feel good, um, I mean, to that point, I I've told you this before, but I, I think back, you just said like with sweating and, and I just mentioned wardrobe and changing, but the one time I went in for Mad Men and I did the pre-read and they said, Hey, come back for, for the creator of the show and the, 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 the all the executives. And, and you're going to read for this recurring character on Mad Men. And it was only, I think in its first season. So I don't even think it had come out. All I knew was that. All right, it's a period piece, okay, and there's a tone and there's a there's a sensibility to it, okay. And I had this vintage suit um, that was handed down to me from my father, and it was this three piece gray suit, and it fit like a glove. I said, I'm going to wear this suit, and they said, Michael, you're on deck. And I said, Okay, here we go. I'm ready to go. And I put my sides on the ground, and I'm doing my three my pre-fight kind of dance. And they said, okay, you're up. And I bent over to pick up my sides and I split the pants <laughs> right up oh, no. from, I mean, topped, I mean, just completely <laughs> ripped it open to the point where I legitimately felt the breeze. And I was mortified. And I'm literally walking in and there's Matt Weiner, the creator of Mad Men. And I'm a deer in headlights. And I'm like, hello, and in hindsight, I wish I should have, I would have just, I should have just said, hey, funny story. Guess what just happened to me? And I would have diffused it, but I was like, this is AMC and this is a sophisticated show. And I got, and I was mortified and I was literally clinging to the wall going like, don't, don't, don't see this. Please don't see this. And they were like, okay, thank you. And I'm like, okay. And I was like, grabbing behind me to find the knob of the door to get out and back out of the room because i'm like they're gonna see 
I just, I was so mortified. Oh God, the auditions that have happened. Oh my God. <laughs> That's a terrible story. I imagine if you had told them though, you would have been a little more memorable, right? Because oh, that guy split his pants. How about that guy? 100%. And it would have put me at ease. Um, but again, you know, it's a 50-50. You're going, okay, you walk in and you're like, okay, I have to in this split second read this room. Okay, I'm not seeing too many smiling faces. And I know this is a serious show. This isn't a sitcom. It, it, you know, so, and I just read the room wrong. I should have in hindsight and it would have been a funny story. Um, yeah, so it goes. Well, you know, I, when I got into radio at my high school, we had this radio station, which was all metal. It was just, they played thrash metal. This is in the mm. 80s, right? And the way our antenna was positioned we were competing with major market stations in the Bay Area. So we had like, our wattage wasn't huge, but it wasn't bad. And so they trained us for a year before we could go on the air. Get and, out. Yeah, yeah. And there was always somebody monitoring us. So like if you oh. said something wrong, or they you lose your thing. But before we go on the air, you'd have to yell live mic, even if nobody was in the studio. And you hit live mic and this big red on air sign. And it was like, this is real. And so the pressure was on. It was so electric. But when I'm at home, I mean, I love I love the fact that I can edit here. But the the electricity of the moment, it's it's like putting yourself on tape. It's a little bit different. You that dynamic kind of sure. You know, something's something isn't at stake when you're putting yourself on tape in the way that it would be if you walk into the room with a split suit. Absolutely, and there is a lot of. Um, I interpret going in those rooms, especially when you're, you know, at the at the screen test level, where out of thousands submitted, you know, they whittle it down to four. It really is like, okay, I look at the competition because that's what it is. Okay, there's three other guys, and we're all gladiators now going into this arena, and who's going to be the last man standing, and. So I really do get charged going into those rooms. Um, and, and, you know, that that's where, hey, we're, we're, we're putting on the boxing gloves and, and we're stepping in the ring. And who's going to have the, the, the better, you know, sweet chin music? Um, so you, when you lose that, if you're doing it from home, doing these on, you know, the, the, you, you can tell that there's a little bit of air out of the balloon for sure. There is something kind of romantic though. I remember when I saw Tootsie when I was a kid. Yeah. Justin Hoffman is this, you know, he's this kind of struggling actor. And sure. um, and that's a that movie is such a great metaphor for like what you're gonna compromise and what lengths you will go to get regular work. As yeah, actor, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Um, but there's something to be said about the idea that, you know, a struggling actor, an a working actor, it's a romantic idea, but the reality is, is that like, you got to put food on the table, right? So like the, the romance of it is um, the versus the reality is I imagine that it can also, like you were saying, you're paying big, big rent checks in LA and you must be like, you know, you start to take stock of that and it must start to put pressure on you in ways that, you know, people don't quite have in civilians. I should say don't have, they don't have that kind of pressure. Yeah. I mean, in, in the civilian defense, like we chose this you know right. i i could um get a nine to five i mean it's you, you know i i, I could have opted for a more safe 
um, you know, career path, but this is, this has been my career since I was five. It's the only career I've ever wanted to know. Um, and, and, and what I live for and love, um, infinitely. Um, but when you do start seeing the bank account dwindle and there's no jobs coming in, you know, people don't realize just quote unquote getting a commercial. Granted, a commercial now doesn't pay, you know, a, a fraction of what it used to. But 10 years ago, I mean, getting a commercial, which is still really hard because you really need to stand out in 10 seconds, sometimes without saying anything, which you have to, there, you have to be so original or there has to be something memorable about you to stand out, you know, in a sea of submissions. So to get that, if you were fortunate enough to get a national network commercial, it, it does pay the bills for months on end. But if you don't get it, um, I mean, I'm starting to see, you know, uh, a lot of uh, people that I've worked with friends, you know, you do have to get some side work. Um, there needs to be a little, Maybe they're doing some coaching or maybe they're doing some real estate. Um, but no, when you are able to get in these rooms or get an audition or get close to something, it's next to impossible not to start seeing the dollars pour into depleted coffers. Um, so, you know, you do start to get a little bit ahead of your skis sometimes when you're auditioning or getting a, a role maybe it's a possible recurring you think oh man if this gets bumped up to a series regular now or on easy street um it, it's it's difficult i mean it's it's really difficult and and for me personally i mean i've been very fortunate enough to you know have worked enough and be smart enough with my money but also have a uh, an incredibly talented uh, wife who has a, a fabulous career of her own um, that we can, you know, uh, lean on 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 her steady um, profession when when mine is, uh, you know, at times it's uh, we're in the green and sometimes we're in the red. So, but I really do often wonder how people are able to do it in major markets without work um, because it is it's scarce the work is scarce the work that is there doesn't pay what it used to um, talking about residuals and 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 other revenue streams that were once there that aren't there anymore um, I, I mean hats off to people who, who are able to make it work how was it working for a streaming service because Netflix you always work for networks and then suddenly, when you do Grace and Frankie, it's like, okay, this is a, a streaming service. Was that a different experience than working for a network or was it kind of the same? Yes and no. I mean, I you know, we were paid our, – our show was made by Skydance and then, you know, licensed to Netflix. Um, it, it's a different model in, you know, what our union has, um, you know – what 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 is what is normal? What is the norm? You know, with, with if if the show was a series on network, um, there is a minimum pay that you get, 
And then, you know, you're, you're going to get residuals every time it airs. And when they sell it to cable, you get a little piece of that. And with Netflix, at least with my role, um, it was a day rate. And, um, you know, I had such a, an ans- I was such an ancillary, you know, cog um, in that show where I would kind of pop in and pop out. Uh, they were able to often shoot me out in a day. So I would pop in and pop out. And there's my, there's my appearance. So I, I I would get a day fee uh, and it wasn't until uh, about the last season um, we we were able to restructure that a little bit because I was in much more in the, in the final season. Um, But the experience was amazing, obviously uh, working on that show. Um, But, you know, there Again, it's it's hard growing up where the goal, you know, I'm a 90s kid. So the goal was always, hey, to be on the, the major networks, to be in prime time, must see TV. And, and, and that that's gone. I mean, I can't tell you the amount of times that I'll tell someone, hey, did you see this show? What? What is that show? What, sh- what is that even on? I don't even know if I have that channel. You know, where, you know. A a crazy fun fact, I did this show in 1998 that was a mid-season replacement, which at the time didn't mean anything. We were just kind of a filler. They had canceled the show, and we, you know, kind of did did clean up at the end of the year, and we followed Home Improvement. It was like the the last season or second to last season of Home Improvement, and our show did well, and every week we'd get more viewers. It was a show called That's Life. And our last episode, I swear to God, I'll never forget it. Our last episode, we knew we were not getting picked up. It was, that, that, that was, you know, concrete. Our last episode, we did 12 million viewers. Whoa. And that today would be like the number one show. And granted, that's many moon ago. But, you know, now you do these streamers and you do these cable shows and, some people have heard of it and some people see, you know, so it's all very fragmented. Um, if that answers your question. I mean, just to give the, the listener an idea, yeah, like someone like James Corden on a nightly basis wouldn't even get a million. So 12 million for one show is like, that's like two weeks of Corden. Right. Isn't that, I mean, right. That's yeah. There's a, there's a good way to extrapolate it. Right. Yeah, it's I, you know, and you just go, where did all the people go? And well, they just maybe they're on the streamers. Um, again, it, it's hard to know who is on the streamers and who, who watches because they don't release their their numbers. Um, you know, you just know if it's good enough and if enough people are watching, if they get another season picked up. Which on Grace and Frankie, they they did seven seasons, so that said something. Um, yeah, it's it's all really wild how it's all changed. Um, I feel like shows are very niche. Um, they play to a certain audience, and I think the networks and the streamers know that. And they kind of go in with like, hey, we'll do two, three years of this show, and a season now is maybe eight episodes, sometimes ten. And that's enough, you know? Gone are the days of doing, you know, seven seasons of 22 episodes. I mean, that's next to unfathomable and, and hats off to to shows that still do that i mean the law and orders and the 
you, you know, the, I mean, that's remarkable that they're able to keep doing that and people still tune in and are loyal. Yeah. I was in Amoeba. Maybe I was in there maybe a year ago and I was walking past the DVDs and they had this huge box set of burn notice. Remember burn notice? Oh yeah. Right. I think it was on USA and they said it was, but they were like burn notice box set all 474 episodes or something like that oh my god how many episodes i didn't even realize they did so many they were doing 22 episode seasons for sure well it was like that show um psych yeah there's another one and yeah. you're like wait i mean it, it's it's common lore sometimes fodder but um people talk about arliss on hbo i remember yeah you know at the beginning of hbo that show ran forever. And Robert I don't Wall, know if, right? Yes, and I don't know if I've ever met someone who's seen the show. Um, I remember I did an episode of Bones. I think they did 13 seasons. And staggering. But I, I remember going to certain people, do, do you know, what, what's the show? And I remember going to some people, do you know Bones? I'm like, oh my God, that's my favorite show. So you never know who's watching or where it's big and they just exist sometimes. I was thinking about your career. And I was thinking like you've worked with amazing actors and actresses, Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Martin Sheen, you know, uh, Ed Norton, Michael J. Fox. Yeah. And then <clears throat> the list goes on Gina Davis. Right. Um, am I wrong about Gina Davis? I think I got that right. Right. <clears throat> that was one that, slip through the cracks but we can either edit that okay. out or let we'll the edit that one out. wonder what happened um, there whoops <laughs> uh but you and then also great directors like i i love i think rob burnett's a great director i think we made this movie the direction of that film is fantastic you've worked with Absolutely. great writers you've worked with great casting agents like julie ashton you've you've been taking notes your whole life since you were five whether you even realized it then or not and so when it comes to billy bradley you had this sort of you know, because all of a sudden you're you're writing it, you're directing it, you're starring in it, you're producing it, you're paying for it, you're you yeah. know, you're casting it, you're doing everything. So suddenly you are everybody that you've come into contact with, um, and you did it beautifully. Did oh, you, thank you. I mean, really, just for your first effort, my God, it's it's like uh, oh, thank you, Granny, made to do this. And so, were you surprised at how? I want to talk specifically about directing. First of all, sure. how was that? How was it directing you? Was that was that a challenge? And and what did you think of being behind the camera for the first time instead of being in front of it? I never could have expected loving it as much as I did and now do. Um, I remember saying to someone recently that I can be so indecisive uh, about what I want for dinner five minutes before ordering and yet on the day directing i was never more decisive I, I i knew in the moment what take i liked uh if we needed another take if i wanted a closer shot if we um should do another one for safety i just knew it i, I felt really confident i think that confidence i mean through you know years of being on set, um, learning from so many greats, uh, you know from the names you just mentioned, and watching, you know, I, I, especially on Grace and Frankie, watching amazing directors like 
Betty Thomas or Marta Kaufman and learning and Rob, especially, you know, doing the movie, just learning from these people over the years and kind of, you know, bookmarking certain things they did, their approach, um, and then also having an incredible, incredible DP, Luke Miller from Grace and Frankie, uh, behind the camera on my first going, okay, do you want this shot or do you want that? No, I want that one. Okay, great. And kind of helping, you know, we did a lot of, uh, a, a lot of work before about aesthetic, uh, look, um, light, um, you know, if I wanted a wide shot or if I wanted a, a tight shot on like a, an 85, you know, you start hearing these technical terms. And so once he was able to um, help me a, a little bit before, you know, going over our shot list, um, I felt really equipped um, to, to handle as much as I could on a first uh, time. I, in hindsight, look, there's there's a handful of things I would change um, stylistically and different takes and um, some edits here, snips there, but um, I just love it. I, th there was something, there is something so creative um, being in the director's chair, helping guide performances for actors, but also you know, directing the technical and telling, you know, hey, can we get some more light here? And can we tone this down? And can we set dress this? And that towel doesn't look good there. And kind of staging. There's such a, I, again, I'm I'm completely in love with it now. And I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to get behind the camera again for the next one. In terms of directing myself, it wasn't that difficult because... Um, I've been directing myself all my life with self tapes. Mm. Um, what was tricky, uh, was, and I know will continue to be is doing the performance, having just yelled action, which oddly enough, I didn't do once the entire time I did it. Um, but being in the scene and in liking enough what I'm doing and then watching the other performer and going, okay, that was, Oh, they, they, Oh, they did that. That was really good. And trying not to be an audience member and also to not direct while performing. Um, a couple of times I would stop mid take just because I knew, Hey, we're, we're, I'm, I'm wasting people's time here or, or uh, th th they didn't hit that line the way I would like it. Let's just cut it. Let's just go again. Um, so that aspect is tricky, kind of being in the moment, being present as an actor, um, letting it be organic without hearing the director's voice in your head going, mm, I didn't like that take. We were on the phone a couple months ago and you said to me, you go, I have to go. It's Martin Sheen calling. Remember that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, I, and there was so, I mean, it's, it'd be, you know, it's intense enough to get a phone call from, from Martin Sheen, who seems like such a lovely guy, but also, here you are directing Martin Sheen. I mean, that must have been pretty. Was that intimidating, or did you just did you just sort of go, "I'm just going to meet this head on, and he's just an, just an actor I have to direct"? No, I mean, you'd never do with someone of that ilk. But I think he, because he is such a 
sweetheart. I mean, he is this most generous, magnanimous, um, gregarious, most approachable man I, I think I've ever worked with. And because he and I got incredibly close in the final two weeks of shooting Grace and Frankie, we, we, we um, I was fortunate enough to have my storyline was, was really tethered to his um, and the second to last episode. So he and I spent a lot of time together. And through that time, we had a lot of great sidebars kind of off camera backstage all the while though, I was sitting there going like, Oh my God, it's Martin Sheen. Oh my God, President Bartlett. Oh my God, Armageddon now, of which a lot of the stories are about both those projects, which pinch me still even thinking about them. But um no, it was really, I was just worried on that day. We had such limited time at the location we were shooting. And I was just cognizant of that. And I didn't want to waste his time. He and his amazing wife, Janet, they, they hiked into the valley on a Sunday for me. Little, this this kid from Voorheesville, New York, you know, taking a crack at a pre- passion project. Um I, I think by now, I mean, I've, I've kind of publicly talked about it, but I, I intentionally wrote his part off camera thinking he'll have a better chance of saying yes to this, knowing that he can do a voiceover recording from his house. And not only did he say yes to doing the voiceover, he then called me and said, is there a reason I'm not on camera for this? <laughs> and I said, yeah, because you're Martin Sheen. And he said, what day are you shooting this? Put me in front of the camera. I want to do this for you, kid. When he showed up, I still couldn't believe he actually showed. Honestly, I still was like, maybe he hits traffic. Maybe some, I don't know, some force majeure. Something happens where he's not going to show. Not only did he show up, he showed up a half hour early with a Sharpie for anybody who wanted any autographs, which was just so sweet. And he came hair quaffed makeup ready a camera ready and with wardrobe options and he said michael do you want me to wear this or this and i'm going like Lord. and he even gave me some alt lines and said do you mind if i do and i was like yeah by all means do whatever you want um no it was just such a joy i mean directing to be able to say that i quote unquote direct i mean i didn't have to give him any performance notes obviously it was more like a cue of like martin do you mind if i i'm sorry that i flubbed that line do do you have two more minutes for me to do it again him and and the great garrett morris in my first um it's uh, i just can't believe they said yes and i am so honored and eternally grateful because it's just um they didn't have to, and they did, and I, I, I'm forever indebted to these these icons, really. I was also happy to see um, R.J. Smith, who was on the show with you a couple of years ago. Um, the sweetest. Just the loveliest guy, and um, and he's in the movie as well. And I also – I love the fact – because you guys met on the set of We Made This Movie, right? Yeah, and it's – it's we, we love telling the story that um, – when we did, we made this movie. We had a couple of days before we shot to all get to know each other, and we all um, hung out at Rob's house and 
I remember him walking in. He was the last to come in because he had to fly from L.A. We were all uh, – the other cast was all pretty much local. And he came in, and he hugs everybody. And he just – I mean he actually hugged the driver that that picked him up. So I – so any, that's just the kind of guy he is. But he came over and hugged me, and and I was like, oh, right, you from that Nickelodeon show? And, you know, we – start to kind of realize that we're, oh, we're both kid actors that kind of made it out the other end. And from there, we became so, so close. And now, I mean, you know, we're godparents to his amazing son, Wyatt. Um, and I mean, RJ, RJ is the type of guy, th this is who he is. I told him about this script um, which is semi-autobiographical, and I said, hey, RJ, oh, wait, what am I talking about? I have to tell your audience how, like, oh, my God, how I met Harold. My God. Yeah, right. I know. Um, I was thinking, like, I know I'm all out of order here, but – but No, yeah. I'm I'm all over the place. Uh, apologies. Um, so, no, RJ and I became incredibly close. We are so close to his amazing, brilliant wife. Uh, Brittany Scott Smith and uh, in fact we just saw them all this weekend um, and they had a going away party my wife and I we were in LA at the time and they were moving to New York and they were having a going away party at um, RJ's in-laws <laughs> and we were there and I see RJ talking to this sweet kind of quiet genteel man and he said Michael come here I want you to meet Harold and I said hi Harold and and what do you do and he said oh I'm, I'm retired now but I, I I was a conductor and a music arranger and and RJ said stop Harold Harold conducted the Oscars the last 15 years and I was like oh my oh my yeah oh my god yes of course how are you and I said conductor oh my god I always wanted to be a conductor as a kid and he said get out of here I said oh my god I was obsessed with this song from a chorus line, music in the mirror, Marvin Hamlish, and there's this orchestral build at the end, and it's this cacophonous, joyous, oh, and I was just going on and on, and I go, do you know it? Do you know that sec? Do you know that song? Do you know that section? And he said, no, it. I wrote it. And I, I started to cry. And so cut to years later when I tell RJ, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to go make this thing in great part because he and Brittany had, had made two short films prior to God bless them. They went out there and did it on their own. And I was a part and involved with both. And, uh, you know, they really, they blazed that trail. You know, they got the crew and they assembled everything. And I, and I was able to watch them. Okay, how are you doing this on a shoestring budget? And who do you go to for insurance? And who do you go to for this? And I, I, I learned so much from them. And cut to several years later, I said, hey, I'm going to do this thing. I obviously need you to be in it. I, I wrote a very funny fictionalized version of him, uh, essentially. But I said, you know, without you, there is no story of me meeting Harold. Now I just need to cast Harold, and I, I need your help. And he said, I, I can get, I think I can get Garrett Morris. And I said, you're get out of here. And I, I was lucky enough to do one episode of Two Broke Girls in their final season. 
I had the privilege of working with with Garrett, and I was like, "There's no way, he, really." And he called me that day. And he said, "Yeah, he's in. He he not only is in, he loves Harold. He's friends with Harold. And he'd be he said it'd be an honor to portray." And I'm like, "What?" So no, it, and it's funny too. Now having done the short with RJ and and you know he he helped produce the short. I I I want to keep doing more with him. It's so fun. Um, I, you know, we have we we did our little bit in like an hour, and we have some great little bloopers of just he and I flubbing lines or me giving him an alt line, and and we just there's a real we're very simpatico when we're on set, and and it's um, really fun to work with someone that you feel that comfortable with. Um, I love him. I love him to death. Did Garrett remember you from Two Broke Girls? He did. He did. He was so sweet. He loved the episode. There was talk of maybe having me back, and then unfortunately they they got canceled. Um, he did remember me, and he's just the sweetest guy. And he was talking about Jen Coolidge, and you know we were sharing our Jen Coolidge stories, and he showed up again, like like Martin hair and makeup ready and wardrobe ready and he was just magical he has this twinkle in his eye this wisdom um the sparkle that is it's it's so captivating and he's um he's so sweet i just saw him we, we were fortunate enough to uh, not only get in the Beverly Hills Film Festival, but we opened. We helped. Uh, we were one of the films that opened uh, the festival. We were there on opening night, and and he came, and and he, RJ, and I walked the red carpet together. And to see people come up to him with tears in their eyes, thanking him um, for being such a trailblazer and 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 making people laugh for so long. Um, and, and who he is in, in his community and, and, and in the entertainment community as a whole, it's, it's, it was really powerful and profound to see uh, firsthand. And um, I just, I, I can't, I still can't believe he and Martin and, and RJ and, and the, the brilliantly talented actress who plays my wife, Alexandra Metz, said yes, especially to my first one. Very few people want to do the first one. They'll do the second one. Uh, once you kind of, you know, find your footing, but it's that first that people are usually reluctant to. And and I have to say, I was really blessed um, to hear a lot of yeses. Yeah, Alexandra was marvelous too. She was really great. She really um, was. What I love about the movie is that it covers that experience with Harold. It covers that whole thing, um, and then it. It, it sort of transitions into this kind of health issue um, with, you know, in, in that sort of, it's a brain tumor and it's sort of like, it's a very heavy thing. And the way that the film resolves is it sort of like, well, there just has to be more, you know? And so was the idea to, first of all, talk about the idea of um, incorporating what was happening, which is also, it mirrored your own, um, health issue in the same way and then also were you thinking like hmm feature one day like let's 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 expand this yeah absolutely what what had happened was i wrote this script i wrote it as a half hour drama 
at the beginning of lockdown. Um, and I had a struggling actor who kind of played the piano and then had a freak accident and woke up this music savant with synesthesia. I've always been mildly obsessed with synesthesia. Um, I find it just so interesting and fascinating, um, especially being an okay piano player. I can't imagine sitting down at the piano and seeing these vivid colors and vibrant colors. So, and then about, God, nine months after I wrote it, I was diagnosed with this benign brain tumor. And, you know, my wife was, God, seven months pregnant and um, I had it removed. And then I remember after having it removed and having to learn how to walk again and, and then having our son born and two months after, I thought, oh, what if I tweak this script and add the brain tumor, take out the freak accident, but add this tumor a little more semi-autobiographical. And then a friend suggested I cut that script down to a short. And I said, okay, I think I can do that. And I just love cliffhangers. I've always loved cliffhangers. I like last minute twists. Um, I like that little gasp. I don't know. It kind of feels like I got a bang out of my from my buck when I watch something that there's this unexpected something. I do appreciate tidy endings, clean, but I do like a little, you know, at the end. And I wrote this ambiguous ending because I like ambiguous endings, but really thinking, man, if there was someone out there that is entertained by this and and their interest is piqued and they want to know what happens next well i do know what happens next uh in, in a perfect world this would be a film and i know what the next hour and a half of the film looks like and i know how it ends and so yeah i hope that this serves as the first 13 minutes of a, a an hour and 45 minute movie um that's in a very perfect world in which we don't live. Uh, I'm, I'm extremely no. content now to go, Hey, this was a really nice piece of art. Uh, I had never directed. I had, it's crazy being in the industry for 30 years that I had never actually made something of my own. Um, I was always fortunate to perform in something that others had created. So this was, I think it was high time. Um, and again, I, I really do thank Brittany and RJ for giving me the courage uh, by leading, by, by doing it first and sh and showing me like, hey, yeah, you're next. Like, you know, let's go. What, what are you doing? We did it. You do it. Let's go. Um, so, yeah, I think right now it serves as really, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I can have this on a reel that uh, – people are able to enjoy it for, for what it is. It's a 13 minute semi-autobiographical short. It's just remarkable. Like in candy bar terms, it's a Snickers because there's so much in every minute of this. Oh, of this film. Um, I mean, it really you is. Mensch. It's amazing what you cram in and it's just so elegantly done. It's, it's a brilliant film. And are you thinking about, 
I mean, I would imagine now you've got the now you've got the directorial. Um, you've always been a brilliant writer and an actor, and and now it's sort of like okay, directing. You love it. You have something else that in the queue that you're thinking about or working on or. Yeah, I, I you know I I've. God, I mean, look, in a perfect world, you and I would be able to do some of the scripts that you and I tinkered with a couple of years ago. That's right. Um, I just, in fact, I think I, now I know I did. I sent you the pages to uh, potentially the next short. Um, I'm very keen on on doing this this next short soon. Um, I, I, I have this concept. I have, you know, a rough... 18, 19 page script um, in, in my, uh, in a folder on my laptop. And I, I'm starting to visualize how I would shoot it. Um, you know, how I would like the look, the kind of light where I would set it. I'm already starting to see like the wardrobe. So I'm, I'm already, I'm excited about it. I was just telling my wife that, I think I, I want to do this one. I, you know, now it's, it becomes the, the, you know, the logistics. Okay. Where am I going to assemble the crew? And if we did it locally, how could I do it this way? And, you know, be mindful of a budget uh, because whatever the budget is, it's always going to go over. So I have those hurdles to get over, but no, I cannot wait to direct more. Um, there's talks of me directing uh, someone else's short, which I, I, um, incredibly honored that they even would think of me um but no i i can't i can't wait and i'm I'm excited to to maybe not perform in in one i'd like to sit at a monitor in video village and just be able to watch the performance and really dial in and just quote unquote direct um and really kind of give all of my energy to that um so no, I can't wait. I, I whoever will have me, and, and maybe it's my own project. And if I'm lucky, that someone would want to have me. I mean, I I can't wait. If your son says to you in a couple of years, you know, I've been thinking, I would like to act. Would you? How do you handle that? Would you be? I mean, of course he'd be supportive. I mean, of course. Um, but what kind? What kind of advice would you give him? Because the world in which one acts today is different than the one that you grew up in. It's just changed. The, the speed of it has changed. The mediums have changed. Um, it's funny you say this because he, yesterday, he made me laugh so hard at our dinner table. We were having a snack and he made me laugh. And I said, where did you learn? And you know, but the audience doesn't know. He's you know, 27 months. He's just past two years old. And he i said where where did you you're so funny where did you get how did you get to be so funny and he said daddy's funny and i said oh thank you and he goes daddy's an actor like dick van dyke <laughs> and because that was how i somehow was able to explain to him that daddy's an actor i said you know how you like chim chimery that man is dick van and i that's somehow that was my explanation of what daddy does and he goes, I'm an actor like Dick Van Dyke. And I went, no, no, wait, 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 whoa. <laughs> and the reason is uh, he's so smart. I, I already see it. And I just, I think that he's going to be 
capable of doing so much more than interpreting someone else's material. Um, and that's not to say that there's not honor in it. It's what I've chosen to do. Um, it's what I'm so passionate about. But, you know, when I think I have a good read, it's because I inflected the third word in a sentence differently than someone else did. And I would like him to at least, I, again, I want him to be creative uh, in what capacity uh, we've yet to find out. Um, I just want his, I, I don't know. I think that there, uh, look, at again, if he wants to be an artist, I, I would never, nor would I ever think of, of depriving him of that. But I just think that there's so much in the world that needs addressing. Um, and I think that while it's great that someone can deliver a line uniquely uh, and can embody Abraham Lincoln beautifully, um, that's all well and good. But I also think that, you know, we, we need to know where our clean water is going to come from. And we need to know where um, the next, you know, clean meal is going to come from. And we need to eradicate this. And I just, I don't know, I want to expose him to all of the other very creative uh, professions and careers that are out there that maybe don't involve getting up on a stage and saying, please like me. There you go. Finishing on a philosophical note, uh, but that's Michael Charles Roman. Philosophical, sophisticated, hilarious. The guy has it all. Introducing Billy Bradley can be found on Vimeo. Is it Vimeo or Vimeo? Let's go with Vimeo. It sounds a little more uh, high class, huh? Uh, Vimeo. Introducing Billy Bradley. Watch it. You're going to love it. And look for Michael Charles Roman. Uh, on a screen near you very soon. Always exciting news coming down the pike with him. AlexGreenOnline.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening with me. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor or on Instagram at Ember's Podcast or just email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Don't forget to check out BombshellRadio.com to find out what makes our radio station tick. And you've heard me say it before, but it remains true. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell all your friends. We would certainly appreciate it. We talked about Leif Wallabeck at the beginning of the interview, and uh, Michael's a huge fan. He actually wrote Leif a note, and Leif actually gave him a song to be used in introducing Billy Bradley. So if you listen closely, it's there. That's what we call coming full circle. The generosity of artists helping out other artists. There is nothing better, in my opinion. So, keeping that in mind, let's close the show with a little Leif Volabeck. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. 
I was laughing at my friend who sold his soul. I guess it wouldn't have been so funny had not just sold mine for less. And staring at the orange smokestacks and the sunset casting shadows until our faces drown. I guess it's better to have left and left than never to have left at all. Found myself on a subway coming for the ground. But I. Oh, I used to tangle. But that, that was then. I danced too close to the band That's how I got this ringing in my ears Sometimes I just can't see From the sound Oh, I can't hear it during the day It's just at night When things get quiet On the subway Comes above the ground Tennessee Yes, I went looking For someone to throw me against the wall I want to be inspired Until this heartened Spend the money that I'd hardened Just to see his name with Flashing yellow light bulbs All around In the Mississippi, he wasn't even 31. If only he'd come up back away from the ground. Next to you on that bus going straight Straight out of town From Memphis, Nashville To New York City Your jaw was wild and pretty And you turned to me And you said am I in ruins Was like the outskirts of the city For the subways are all come
en Aston It was festival season And I went knocking on your door Yes, you opened up And there you were With the halo of the porch light You were crowned We stayed up all night Phrases fading like countryside In the rearview mirror And I was hoping that one day You'd be next to me Or at least somewhere near On the subway Comes both down 